Jesus. Your love is steadfast and secure. It never changes. You are so holy and so good. We are so grateful to be in your presence. Good. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Welcome. I am so glad to be with you here today. My name is Randy Banning. I have the privilege of getting to serve on the oversight team with my husband, Jairus, um, and several others. Um, Jairus and I also get to head up Regen's care team, and we also help develop leaders through huddle. So, um, will you pray with me real quick? Jesus, Father, Spirit, open our ears. We want to hear whatever it is you want us to hear today. So speak, Lord. We are listening. Amen. So if you have your Bible with you, if you have your Bible with you, open to John 4, but it's going to take us a minute to get there. We need to talk for a second. We've all been there. And if you haven't, you may have had nightmares about it. You know, you're at a house party with people that you really respect. You put a lot of thought into the clothes that you wore. You're on your very best behavior, trying really hard to avoid faux pas. Your voice might even be a little bit different. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Lovely to be here. Unfortunately, your digestive system didn't get the memo that this was a big night. Or maybe it did. Maybe that is the problem. The massive lunch that you ate in order to keep from looking like a pig at dinner was probably a big mistake. You do your best to participate in the conversation through cold sweats, but as your body threatens to rebel, you realize you are literally out of control here. So you do your best to look cool and politely excuse yourself. You make it to the restroom. Thank goodness, right? Probably take entirely too long, but you can cover that up with a compliment on their decor. Everything's going to be fine. You clean yourself up, flush, and expect to see all the evidence disappear so you can move on with your night. But instead of the anticipated swirl down the drain, the water starts to rise. (laughs) If you have never prayed a day in your life, you are praying now. 
what do you do? Do you ask for help? There is nothing more humiliating than saying, I hate to interrupt your fancy dinner party, but um, do you have a plunger? Some of you handy people might be thinking, well, um, just reach down and turn off the water valve. But not all of us are so quick on our feet, MacGyver. So that may not actually be helpful in this case. And regardless, it's only a matter of time before the people that you really respect out there find out about the terrible thing that you did in here. The feeling that we're talking about here is more than just discomfort. It's more than just embarrassment. It is shame. Growing up, I had loads of it. I wasn't a terrible person. I see that now. I was pretty much your average kid struggling with the same stuff that average kids struggle with. But in my own estimation, I was the worst of the worst. Every Sunday, I was in church. We went to church where if you needed prayer, you had to walk all the way down to the front and kneel at the altar. I did this a few times, but doubts and fears and shame would start to creep up. You can't go up this week. You went up last week. They'll think you didn't mean it. They'll think you don't even love Jesus. They'll think you're a serial killer. You're just the worst. Praying this week won't change anything anyway. You're just too messed up. Why even bother? I recognize this now as the voice of the enemy. In my mind, the things that I did that stood between me and God, we call the sin, they became things that I felt that I needed to hide in fear of being found out. Eventually, the weight of my guilt, an inability to untangle myself from the striving to still behave as if I were this model church kid, led to serious shame. Shame researchers have built a pretty clear distinction between guilt and shame, for good reason. Annette Kammerer for Scientific American explains that guilt holds us back from harming others and encourages us to form relationships for the common good. We feel guilty and so we turn our gaze outward and seek strategies to reverse the harm that we've done. We say, whoops, I made a mistake. I'm sorry, how can I help make it right? When we feel ashamed though, we turn our attention inward focusing mainly on the emotions rolling within us and attending less to what's going on around us. We become blinded by, oh no, I messed up again. I always mess up. I'm just a messer-upper. I'm never going to get it right. What I did became who I am until I started to believe that I was inherently flawed, 
broken beyond repair. The only way that I could possibly be fit for human consumption or for good Christian service is to fracture myself into bite-sized pieces and bury the rest of me or to beat those parts into submission. When I was about 17, a friend invited me to go to youth group at one of the really big churches. I was really excited, but also terrified. I didn't have the right version of the Bible. I didn't know the right music. The parts of me that were church approved were not cool enough to be around my peers. I wasn't willing to risk it, so I did what any good theater kid would do. I put on a costume. I rooted around in my drawer, and at the very, very bottom, I found a never-worn, crisply folded Christian t-shirt with a fancy Bible verse written on it. <laughs> I pulled my hair back in some way that I never wore it, but I felt like it was somehow appropriate for youth group. Um, I put on my church manners and went to youth group. This was beyond dressing and behaving appropriately for a specific scenario. Honestly, I was wound up in knots inside the whole time because I was so scared of someone seeing me and saying, you are not this person at all. I so desperately wanted to press the community, but the very thought of my sin, my imperfection, and just my humanity being discovered and affecting others and being rejected, it was terrifying. So I just never went back to youth group. My answer was to continue to fracture and bury myself under costume after costume until I could barely breathe. But some of us find ourselves so mired in shame that we just give up. We find a woman like that in John 4. Chapter 4 of the book of John, we find Jesus and his disciples traveling from Judea and Gal to Galilee. Now, most good Jews avoided Samaria on principle, even though it was the most direct route. Because, now brace yourselves, this is going to sound a little icky. Samaritans were of mixed heritage with the Gentiles. Now, we're all of mixed heritage now, but at this point in history, it was viewed as some kind of a betrayal. They also opposed every restoration or advance of the Jewish people, yet they claimed to be the true recipients of Abraham's promises, and they even created their own priesthood. In the eyes of the Jews, Samaritans were counterfeit at best. At worst, they were violent traitors. Yet, we start reading in Yet, we start reading in verse 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. 
It was a divine necessity that Jesus go through Samaria. He had an appointment. Verse 5, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. This is when we gasp, (gasps) right? A Samaritan, a woman, and them being alone? Three very good reasons, according to Jewish culture, why Jesus should have just kept his distance. In fact, Jewish tradition dictated that if Jesus were to drink from the jug that this Samaritan woman even touched, it would make him ceremonially unclean. Verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Again, Jesus is there because he has an appointment, and she doesn't even realize Verse 11, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. This exchange cracks me up because, first of all, she gets a little sassy, and I kind of love that. She clearly has no idea who she's talking to at this point, yet Jesus just patiently continues the conversation. Secondly, when Jesus offers her the opportunity to never be thirsty again, she was sold. You see, this is the heat of the day. This was not the opportune time to get water. Historically, women went in groups early in the morning and late in the evening for safety, to help one another, and to socialize. Way before ladies were meeting at Starbucks for brunch, before there were spinning classes, before there were knitting circles, before there were bridge clubs, There were entire communities of women going for their daily water run. Yet, this woman, because of her shame, 
comes to the well in the heat of the day, alone. No one watching her back if wild animals come along. No one offering to share the load as she pulls the full water jug from the bottom of the well. No one giggling or chatting or even making eye contact with her to give her a reassuring smile. So when Jesus is offering water to her that she won't have to suffer in the sun to get, and then she also won't have to deal with judgmental stares or press into vulnerability, she jumps at the chance. Yes, please give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Verse 16, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Wow, Jesus, just wow. I would bet that she was wishing that the well would just open up and swallow her whole. Like, Jesus just laid it out there plainly. <laughs> She's been married to five men, which even by today's standards might raise some eyebrows. And she's currently living with another guy that she's not married to. However, what I think is so amazing is no matter how scandalous her past has been, Jesus commends her for her honesty, and he doesn't bring it up again. He doesn't drag her through the mud or point out what she did wrong in each relationship. He compassionately acknowledges that he sees her sin. He sees all of it. And that he sees the good stuff, too. He treats her as if she belongs, even before she believes. This causes her to recognize a little more of who Jesus might be and causes her to ask him a serious question. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerasim where our ancestors worshipped. This was one of the biggest issues between the Jews and Samaritans, so she really wanted him to sort it out for her. There's something about the way that Jesus dove headfirst into her shame that made her think not about herself and her shame, but about worship, about how to best honor God. This is beginning to feel like some kind of transformation. Verse 21, Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter 
whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. People have preached entire series on these four verses. Jesus just blew this woman's understanding of God and worship wide open. To worship in spirit and in truth means worship can't be limited to coming to a specific place and engaging in certain rituals, wonderful as those things are. It's both an event and a lifestyle. Worshiping in spirit means to worship wholeheartedly, sincerely, recognizing by the power of the Holy Spirit who God is and what he's done. Worshiping in truth means to base our worship not in how we feel, but in what is true. We may not feel worthy based on our behavior or our circumstances, but a quick read through so many of the Psalms, Psalm 139 in particular, allows us to worship the Father from a place of truth that doesn't change like our feelings do. This is such good news for us. And it was good news for the Samaritan woman too. Verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. <laughs> well, isn't that exciting? <laughs> Jesus doesn't come out right out with straight answers like this super often. He has this really interesting way throughout the Gospels of answering questions with questions most of the time. So for him to declare, I am the Messiah, that is really cool. Verse 28, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This woman, who used to come to the well at noon to avoid judgmental stares, was now hiking up her skirts and charging into town, waving her past shame like a flag. He told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? <laughs> I love that her transformation is a little bumpy. Her faith is a little imperfect. I mean, he just told her. He was the Messiah. <laughs> and she's phrasing it in the form of a question. Yet the people still came streaming from the village to see him. Even our faltering faith can be fruitful. 
Like Jesus met the woman at the well, he also met me, steeped in the middle of my shame. I would absolutely love to say that I had one remarkable, life-changing meeting with Jesus and all my shame was gone. That I too left my water jar behind, never again to draw from the well of shame and striving. But for me, it's been a little more like many seemingly chance encounters with the Holy Spirit within people that pressed in through the costume layers to the shameful mess that was the real me and loving me anyway. Once I was able to drink deeply of the living water, I realized that I was fully seen by Jesus, fully known by him, and somehow still miraculously, graciously, fully loved. The knot of shame and striving started to unwind. And what's funny is that as that shame lost its hold on me, the things that stood between me and the Father, those things that I was so desperate to hide, those things became easier to just kind of like move out of the way. I have been able to seek accountability with trusted friends. I've been able to be vulnerable with people, like you all right now. <laughs> um, and have been able to gradually allow the Father to put the fractured pieces of me back together because I'm not constantly protecting myself. So maybe you have never guzzled from the well of shame and striving. Maybe you gravitate toward another well altogether. A well that you keep returning to. It may sustain for a moment, but it doesn't satisfy. Wells of addiction, whether to alcohol, drugs, pornography, romance, work, or even approval. Wells of idolatry. Anything that takes priority over God can become an idol. Wells of self-reliance, which make it really hard to trust anyone, let alone a God you cannot see. Wells of hatred, wells of greed. These wells, they lead to death, friends. They make big promises. They have flashy signs. They're surrounded by big crowds. But they lead to death. You know what wells you keep returning to. So with all my love, and with not even a hint of judgment, please allow me to speak plainly. Stop it. Return to your first love. Or maybe meet him for the first time. Leave your jars at his feet. Smash them if you need to. Practically, this is going to look a little different for everyone. 
No matter what, it starts by talking with Jesus and just noticing what he brings to your attention. Then it might mean that you need to lock up the credit cards. Or it might need, maybe you'll need to switch to a flip phone or take a different route home. Or maybe you'll need to draw new boundaries in some relationships. After that, it's time to seek some prayer and accountability because we were made to thrive in community. The oversight team would love to pray with you. It is our absolute favorite thing that we get to do. We are two weeks into Lent, but it's not too late. Jesus is waiting for you, even in the most unexpected places. And he's waiting for you to ask for a drink of the living water. He has an unlimited supply. We think of Lent as a time of sacrifice, but it's hardly a sacrifice to walk away from a well that is poisoning you to drink from a stream of living water offered by the only one who sees all of your sin and loves you anyway. So drink from the living water that only he offers and never be thirsty again. Will you pray with me? Jesus, your love is absolutely overwhelming, not like any other love. Help us to have the courage to leave our jars behind at your feet. Jesus, we need a drink of your living water. Not just a drink, Lord. We want to just be saturated by your living water so that it'll splash off on everyone around us. We trust you. Help us to trust that your love will continue to bubble up and be everlasting so that we don't need to return to these other wells that don't satisfy. Here at Regen, we do response times after our messages because we want to be like wise builders. We want to build our lives on the rock. And we do that by hearing the word of God and then by being transformed and living it out. And so I want to ask you kind of a couple of questions, a couple of things to think about during our response time. And the first is, what is that well that you tend to go to that's not the living water? And once you kind of identify that well, once the Father speaks to you about that, my question is, um, maybe you want to celebrate that this Lent you've already taken some steps and that you're experiencing more of the living water because of those choices. And so I just want to allow the Father to speak his delight over you, that he is getting more and more of you. Um, but maybe you're still struggling with that well. Maybe you're still returning to it and finding it coming up empty but just feeling stuck. 
And I really want to invite you to ask the Father to speak over that today. The oversight team will be in the back afterwards. If you just feel really stuck and you need prayer for that or for any physical healing or anything like that, we'd love to pray with you. But let's just take this moment and invite the Father to speak to our hearts today. Father, we confess um, that we so often turn to wells and to cisterns that run dry. And so I pray today for myself, for these brothers and sisters, for those listening, that we would return to our first love, that we would drink of the living water. For those, Father, from the sound of my voice, who have never once said yes to you, who, who feel just this, this dry sense, this sense of needing more, I pray that today would be the day that they say yes to you, Jesus that they would experience that living water for the first time. Father, we pray that as we struggle to, to leave those wells behind, that as we struggle to not return, that by the power of your spirit, that you would break the hole that they have over any of the lives of those of us here, that we would repent, that we would confess, that we would be transformed into the likeness of your son, and that we would never be thirsty again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. come to the table together every week come to the table together every week and every week it takes on some fresh meaning and maybe you're not one that struggles with shame that must be really nice because shame plays a big part in my story and, and has a loud voice in my life and I often feel like I'm not enough. And I come to this table today and the Lord says to me, in one sense it's true, we're not enough. We, we all, like sheep, have gone astray, haven't we? We've all failed. But in another sense, Jesus has often spoken over me, but you are enough for me. And so in your failure and in your shame, Jesus invites you to this table. And, and every week I make a statement. I say, we invite everybody to this table, everybody with a pulse. And some people struggle with that, as if there's some magic power in the bread that'll zap you dead if you eat it the wrong way. Why do we invite everybody to the table? Because Jesus looked at the woman at the well, and she belonged before she believed. If you have a pulse, you're welcome to the table of Jesus. For him to find you with his grace and his love to restore you and to renew you. And today, after two years, intinction is back, otherwise known as dipping the bread like a nacho into the juice and taking it. Now, I know that we're all in various places in our journey. Some of us have even begun a new health journey in this time, and so we want to honor everybody. We want to honor you don't go to a United Methodist Church, you go to a church with strange dietary restrictions is where you go. And so we have gluten-free, gluten-free options available as well. So if, if you're not sure you wanna like rip off the bread and deal with those 
you, that we have the to-go cups and the to-go cups, some of those are gluten-free, but you'll come forward and someone will rip off a piece of the bread and they'll say, this is the body of Christ given to you and they will put it into your hand. And then you'll take, you'll take that piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup. As someone says, the blood of Christ shed for you and you'll eat it. You'll taste and see the Lord's goodness in your shame. And so to get this done, I need a whopping five people who feel that God is calling them to serve communion this morning. Five people. One, two, three. Steph does not count. She does other things. Four, five. Okay. Gentlemen, you're allowed to touch the communion elements just for future reference. Okay. Okay. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he offered it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. And in the same way also, he took a cup and he offered it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you and for many in forgiveness of sins. He said, take and drink. So we pray, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and cup and on those gathered here that in eating and drinking of them, we might taste your grace afresh, that you would meet us in our shame, that you would restore us and renew us, or maybe, or maybe that some of us would receive what you have for the first time. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I ask you to go to the center aisle, come down, and then go up the sides. The table is open.